think you have to stick to the fact that it's not up to us as leaders to come up with the solutions to everything. And usually, more often than not, the solution will come from the group of people or the people, the person even, that you're speaking to. It's a balance, isn't it, between leading a conversation and really being open to finding out where that conversation is going to go and being receptive to ideas. Hi there, I'm Ben Morton and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts from all around the globe. And it's all designed to help you be the very best leader you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's completely free. In today's episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast, I'm talking with Alex Brooks-Johnson, who is the CEO of Guildcare, a leading social care charity on the south coast of Britain. With 25 years experience in the charity sector, Alex is passionate about addressing social inequality and using his skills and experience to create and grow social value in the community and drive societal change. In this episode of the show, we go deep on just a few key topics. And in listening, you can expect to learn a number of very practical tips for having difficult conversations that we all need to have as leaders from time to time, but tips to help you do so in a way that achieves the outcome you need to achieve without leaving those involved, including ourselves, feeling unnecessarily bruised. You'll learn how to effect cultural change in organisations where the existing culture is deeply, deeply ingrained. We look at how to stay resilient and motivated ourselves when trying to change culture and do things differently. And you'll also learn how Alex is really mixing up and changing the normal approach to performance management to great effect within Guildcare and how you can do the same. That's enough of an introduction though, so let's dive right in. Here's my interview with Alex Brooks-Johnson. Alex, can you tell us please about your first memorable leadership experience? And that could be good or bad, an experience in the workplace and how that has gone on to influence how you operate as a leader yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I had quite a um, a fairly traumatic experience as a junior leader. Several things have happened to me as a manager before that, but this was the first time it really felt like a significant leadership moment. So I worked for my first charity was a an international development organisation called Children's Aid Direct, and it got into financial difficulty and ended up going into liquidation about 20 years ago quite a big agency I you know worked in 14 15 countries um sort of 20 million turnover more than 100 staff it was quite a big operation but it was quite big news in the sector PwC were acting as the administrator and I learned a lot from them actually about negotiation it's the first time I'd had a glimpse into that world and that sort of just blew me away a little bit the experience which I think has shaped me was it was quite a traumatic time for that for the whole organization really and and as such a lot of the senior people were impacted by stress 
And so it ended up with me being in the fundraising department and communications department, which is, you know, about 40 people, I think, roughly, maybe 30, 40 people. You know, I, I ended up being the most senior person there and therefore having to have redundancy conversations with people that I've been working very closely with for, you know, years. It was hard, very hard to do, but but actually I did it. And um, it's really helped me realise the importance of not shying away from these things and just being brave, facing these things head on and just trying not to be somebody else. So it really taught me early on the values of being an authentic leader. It's kind of shaped me and I always go back to that. Even though I had an experience this week where we've had to break some bad news to some tenants in one of our sheltered housing schemes. And even then, before that meeting, this was 20 odd years ago, you know, I thought about, you know, that leadership experience of being exposed, of thinking, you know, why, why me? Why am I the one that's standing here in front of these people or having to have these meetings with people? You know, it's an experience that shaped me. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to dig a little deeper into that, actually, Alex, because the topic of handling difficult conversations, challenging conversations, uncomfortable conversations, whatever you want to call them, is so often the thing that people say they want from any leadership and management training. Just people are, I think a lot of people are nervous, fearful of them. Maybe that's because they worry about saying the wrong thing and kind of the legal ramifications. Then there's the more human side, so not wanting to hurt people. So if you go back to that experience for you, were you in any sort of formal leadership or management position at that time? I know you said you ended up being the most senior, but what was your leadership management experience up until that point? It was very, it had all been about management. So I was a team manager and the team was probably about 10 people-ish. I was a junior manager, really. That was my first glimpse into leadership, you know, the difference between management and leadership. But I think you're absolutely right. The skill in having a difficult conversation is one that is really important to develop because you can't get through life as a, as a leader without having difficult conversations. No matter how well things are going, it will always crop up. So it's an absolute fundamental part of any leader's repertoire has to be and did anybody give you any sort of guidance or counsel in in that experience before you had to go and have those no <laughs> right none at all i mean there was, there was nobody around to do it really right you know it was uh i'm painting a really stark picture and i could get that but it was uh you know it was a tough time that was why it was such a monumental experience for me is because it was you know i felt really quite exposed and actually came through it with some really good feedback, partly because it was, you know, it's really my friends that, you know, having these really difficult conversations with. Well, that makes it even harder. And we really did, yeah, and had some really good feedback about how it was delivered. And uh, I think really made me think about the importance of being that genuine character, you know, that's open and honest. And that has really shaped my leadership style for the next 20 odd years yeah but yeah based on just not shying away from because the, the longer you leave it you know the harder that conversation gets yeah so if I take you back to a sort of 24 hours 48 hours before sort of one of the those first conversations what were you doing to prepare and, and plan for them 
Yeah, so I made sure that um, I was as up to speed as I could be about the legal side of things and making sure that I got the process right. Yeah. Thinking about what questions I was going to get asked. I do remember preparing very thoroughly. I mean, and everyone knew it was coming, so it wasn't a massive surprise to people. And actually later on in my career, including here, here at Gilcare, you know, we've been through some quite significant restructures and, you know, I've had to have conversations with people where it has been a bit of a surprise to them or a complete surprise to them. And I think that's, that is a lot harder. But I think, yes, being prepared, absolutely key, especially when it comes to that sort of more technical HR, employment law side of managing people. I think that piece you said, said there where I almost spoke over you, Alex, around trying to think about what questions they might have to to ask you be that on the technical side or perhaps more personal and emotional i think that's that's so important right and i think sometimes in focusing and worrying on about about the technical aspects we can sometimes forget that it's a human we're going to be sitting opposite right who's got family to feed maybe bills to pay kind of worries about if they're going to be okay. It's always a good reminder, isn't it? When you do get those questions that you haven't actually thought about and, and it's a really good reminder. We, we've just done some reorganization here and we were talking to one of the teams that's involved in the reorganization. We were talking about how much we're investing in these services over the next, you know, it's millions of pounds of investment that going into these services over the next few years. How excited we are that they're part of our strategic development and you know how we could see this team really helping us to reduce social isolation in in the community that we work and we're getting really excited about it and we kind of finished with and this is where you're going to be based we're going to invest and make this office you know beautiful place to work in a really inspiring environment and uh, we finished you know expecting a round of applause and we got well where are we going to park you know, as much as you get excited about these things, it's always, you know, sometimes down to the very basic personal, how's it going to impact me stuff that it's always good to, to try and remember because these things are important. Yeah. I don't know if this will resonate or if you've got any, any thoughts on this and isn't, this isn't so much a, a question, I don't think, but listening to you talking about your experiences there of handling challenging conversations it reminded me of one of my earliest jobs out of the army. I was working towards the end of that that job as the head of HR in a expedition company, which you which you know of actually. Uh, working at World, World Challenge, and we was going to have to make some restructures to the department that was planning all, all of the expeditions, and there was a risk for doing it that there might be some possible redundancies. But from a really good intent, we was trying to do it really collaboratively and say, look, we've got to make this change. We don't know what it's going to look like yet. We want your input. I kind of went about it that way. I said, look, we don't know all the answers. This is what I do know, thinking that would be a a good approach. And it absolutely bombed just because straight away people had loads of questions. I'm like, oh, God, I really tried to do the good thing. But even then, I still didn't quite think, actually, and put myself in really in their shoes and think, well, how are they going to feel? What are they going to going to want want to know? So, yeah, I just think it's interesting. We can have really good intentions, but we can still get it wrong, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to stick to the fact that it's not up to us as leaders to come up with the solutions to everything. And usually, more often than not, the solution will come from 
the group of people or the people, the person even, that you're speaking to. It's a balance, isn't it, between leading a conversation and really being open to finding out where that conversation is going to go and being receptive to ideas. But uh, yeah, I think that's one of the balances that is, you know, it's really hard to strike sometimes. You know, some situations require more collaborative approach than than others. Sometimes you need to be a bit more straightforward with people and a bit more direct yeah and that that's interesting as well Alex because again I don't know if you've um, experienced this yourself or sort of know of colleagues who have experienced this over the past few years when I was doing a lot of work with leadership teams I'd often spend some time talking to sort of the senior people who is reporting into the the head of the MD or, or the CEO to sort of get some insights and feedback into what's going on with the team there was a period where quite often I I would hear things like it's great that x is really collaborative and asks for our input but you know what sometimes we just wish it'd say this is what we're doing we're going in this this direction and just make the make the decision and I found that really interesting and I I wonder if it's because over the past I don't know five to ten years there's been so much written in sort of the leadership and management press about collaboration and sort of engagement that if you imagine a spectrum, I guess, between highly collaborative and highly directive, we've just kind of found ourselves shifted and weighted a little bit towards one end and forgotten that actually sometimes a leader does need to say, we're going this way, this is why. And sometimes people, yeah, yeah, absolutely, will respond to that. And I think that working in the voluntary sector, we do tend to be more on the collaborative end, I think, naturally. Yeah. And actually, when I came to Guildcare four years ago, I joined an organisation that had some cultural challenges. And I was like, okay, you know, my approach was, let's get together and talk about it. You know, tell me what the problems were. But I was met with a deathly silence because... We just hadn't had that culture here. And people were really worried about speaking up, you know, really worried about repercussions, really worried about what their colleagues were going to think about them, you know, talking to the management. You know, initially it was quite frustrating. It was like, well, why, why won't they talk to me? What, you know, what's, mm. what are they, what are they scared of? And then I realized that actually you've got to, got to create that culture. You've got to create that psychological safety. You know, you have to work on that. And it's not about saying, oh, go on, you can trust me. Don't worry. There'll be no repercussions. It's not that simple. You have to build that. It's taken four years. Yeah. Still not there. I mean, I have a an open door policy, but also a, you know, anybody can get hold of me anytime in a, in a confidential way. It's obviously really important in a social care organization, but also, you know, that's the sort of leader I am. You know, if somebody had said that to me as a, you know, a junior employee 25 years ago, you know, you can speak to the chief exec about anything. I'd probably be sending stuff every day, but I don't, I don't, I get very little. And I, every now and then I could sort of do a push for it and I'll get, oh, you know, a, a couple of ideas. But if it had been me, I'd be a flood of ideas and feedback, you know, moaning about this, challenges about this. But, but we haven't quite got there with the culture yet. I think that's my ambition is to get to a point where I'm really annoyed by the amount of feedback. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. That's a great sign of success, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that, I mean, that's what you've shared is is fascinating and, and quite common. I was working with a client just the other day and they're trying to 
for what they need to deliver, they really need to create a culture that is much more innovative, where people are happy to suggest new things, knowing it might not work out and challenge how all the rest of the organization thinks. And the head of this function is trying to land this message and they feel they're being met with almost reasons why it, it can't work. And they was asking me for some, some tips and, and advice. And it's partly because the existing culture is one where people are all expected to have all of the answers, all of the detail at any minute. And I think there is to a degree a sort of fear might be slightly too strong, but along that lines of, of getting it wrong, getting caught out, make, making a mistake. So based on your experience that you've just shared, if there were three tips or suggestions you could share with, with listeners who are in a similar, similar situation, where, as you said, really, they're trying to create more psychological safety, kind of what, what, what would you suggest? I've heard you say already about sort of really pushing that open door policy, but what, what else have you been doing or trying, Alex? Um, so I've been trying to be really consistent with our leadership approach. Okay. So we're, you know, not, not a huge organization, but we have probably about, well, in our SLT, there's seven people across our kind of junior uh, middle management team. There's probably about 30 people. And we've done a lot of work on leadership behaviors and trying to establish a level of consistency so that the, you know, wider employee team know that they're going to get a consistent approach when either they have a problem or if they've got an idea you know we're asking people to get engaged in the organization when they do get engaged then it will be great if there was a consistent Mm. response to that so that uh, it wasn't reliant on you know the old kind of personal relationship around the organization yeah so that consistency in leadership i would say would be is really key and that relies on outlining expectations of leaders values and behaviors Mm -hmm. um, but then regular checking and monitoring that those those values and leadership and behaviors are being adhered to really Mm. Uh, and we we do that through um, our performance management framework right so values are up there with performance you know we have objectives on values and the leaders, in fact, the whole organization have a conversation about values every month as part of their performance management framework. So your performance management framework is monthly. Yeah. So I was really insistent on that. There's a lot of pushback. And actually, we spent about six months designing this program. Yeah. The day that we launched it, I moved house. Right. It was the only day out of the the three years I've been here then, or two and a half years, the only day that I had to, couldn't be here, and we launched it, and uh, I got a phone call at the, you know, halfway through the day saying, there's a there's a mutiny. <laughs> and, uh, what, what was your response? If I leave home, there's going to be a mutiny at home as well, so which one should I deal with? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I, I said, look, you know, this this is a red line. So I very rarely say this, but, you know, that we have to push this through because I was convinced that it's what the organisation needed to establish better relationships, break down these silos. It was a communication block both ways, upwards and downwards. The general kind of values, you know, was inconsistent. 
So I was absolutely insistent that we stuck to a month, but I sort of gave a little bit back by saying there's some flexibility in the amount of time. And also we can change the, tweak the form and this, that, and the other, but, but stuck to my guns. And I'm so glad I did because it's now uh, embedded practice, get very high percentages of, of these monthly meetings happening and people can really see the benefit in having a monthly conversation with your manager that is, you know, protected time, not disturbed. I mean, we, we've tweaked it, actually, we, we've developed it in the operational services where it's now a lot more about observation than a sit-down conversation. And that's been a really good development, actually. Um, but this still happens monthly. Yeah. So where did the initial potential mutiny come come from was it from the sort of leaders of managers who were going to be sort of running the conversations so their reaction was i'm not going to have time to do this where are we going to do it so you know kind of physical space where are we going to do it practicalities and what's the point all good questions which you know took a little while for for people to get their heads around i think and I think it's like a lot of things, it seemed to, so we spent two days launching it. It was like a wrapped up in a management conference and maybe we made too much of a big thing of it and actually maybe a lighter touch, softer launch might have been a better way of doing it just so it wasn't this kind of big change in people's lives. But also it's sometimes these things can look over bureaucratic and they can look really cumbersome and time consuming when actually once you get into the rhythm of it, you can get those conversations down to 20, 30 minutes. You know, once you've got set objectives and you've been through that process of talking, you know, explaining what a KPI is, but then also, you know, what how to set them and how to manage them. You know, once you've done that sort of upfront piece of work, that investment in time, then you're flying. And luckily, that's sort of, that's where we are now. It's the same with anything, probably. It get, depends on people's sort of reference point, doesn't it? So if... The managers who you're asking to do this new process, if their reference point, if they're just thinking about the current system and how much work it is to do it twice a year, or if their reference point is maybe them themselves being on the receiving end of some really uncomfortable kind of performance management processes in previous organizations, then that's, what I guess, what they think they're going to be having to do every four weeks in which case it, it would feel overwhelming I, I suspect yeah it would do or if you're used to just having an annual appraisal yeah which most of us are which most of us are and we've we've scrapped that kind of annual conversation and that's what's spread out monthly so when people start to realize that then um, I think it starts to make a bit more sense yeah and how long did it take before you started to get the majority buy-in and acceptance a couple of years oh really i thought he was going to say six months <laughs> yeah, wow. yes. no i'd say a, couple, a good couple of years and i would say we've, we've only just really started to tip the balance wow and i'd say we've only just started to tip the balance culturally as well so generally it's kind of it was it was what tipped us over the over the edge of being pre-culture change to post-culture change conversation uh, was the acceptance of that performance management framework uh, which we've just adapted, actually. So we've just changed it again to be a bit more specific to job roles. So there's a there's a performance man management framework for managers. There's one for heads of services and there's one for directors. Mm. What are the tangible benefits that the new 
a sort of appraisal structure is is bringing to to the organisation? Performance, broadly speaking, but also um, values too. So everyone in the organisation, and we test this through a regular survey. So every year we ask the same five questions. Oh, I like that as well. The fact it's just five questions. Yeah, just five. And we're seeing an improvement in each of those areas every year. The majority of that is down to having a structured approach to performance management. But actually the performance of the organisation, you know, we're projecting in two years uh, to have doubled our turnover in six years. And that's through a pandemic. We're also projecting quite uh, an increase in social impact as well. So it's not just about the turnover of the organisation. But But that turnover for, for your sector is really significant, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so generally speaking, I would say it's the, the improvement in performance and the fact that we are holding people to account, uh, which wasn't being done before and holding people to account in both performance in their jobs, but also their their behaviours, because collectively we've agreed these values and collectively we've agreed the leadership behaviours. So actually, if if you start to behave outside of that agreed construct then there'll be consequences you know that's now an agreed established way of working this is a really fascinating conversation Alex it's not not where I necessarily thought our our chat would go today but I'm really intrigued to keep it exploring this so as I said I was expecting you to say it taken sort of six months maybe to drive through the change so if it's the case that it's kind of two years and still still ongoing I'm really curious, like, how does your personal resilience stand up to that? And what do you do y- yourself? So you've got the energy, the drive to to keep going and, and pushing it, pushing it through. Like, how do you do that? And where does that come from? <laughs> so every now and then, when it's all getting a bit much, I go out on a, a minibus to pick up some of the older people in the community and take them to their social isolation session which we don't call it that by the way it's you know whatever activity it is and it just really hits home why I'm here so I don't know why and most of my friends don't work in the voluntary sector and I'm always talking to them about how on earth do you keep going you know and you're really working yourself into an early grave to make somebody else wealthy you know I don't get that but um so I've got this social purpose and the organization has a social purpose which I will always come back to when things get really tough. But I can see that there's progress. So I think if you have the right measurement tools or the right framework in place and you can see that there's progress, I think no matter how slow that progress is, it's still encouraging. Yeah, I mean, it's been tested quite a bit. And the thing about social care, and this is my first social care job, is it's very unpredictable and very operational. And so I can get distracted for days on operational issues, which will take me away from that strategic leadership role. But we've got some really good ways of measuring our progress in place. So as long as I can see things are moving in the right direction, even if it's kind of nudging along, then that's enough for me. Mm. And do you ever find there is a tension anywhere in the organisation based on the fact that you're in the third sector with a real sense of purpose. You yourself as an individual, the organisation. I would assume many of the people who work in the organisation are there as well because to a degree they, they connect with that that social purpose. But does that at all create a tension between that and trying to create a, 
high performance organization with strong standards where people are held to account? I'd say no. And I think that I think that's one of the misconceptions about charities is that they are not commercially astute organizations that hold people to account and have talk about performance because that's what a good charity should be doing in my mind. And, um, you know, there are some organizations in the voluntary sector that probably don't do us any favors in the same way. There are some companies that are, you know, amazingly ethical. And one of the things that I've been doing here is trying to create more of a charity. So when I joined, joined the organization, I think it was really focused on its commercial activities and running them really well, but the charitable side of things wasn't, really that developed even though we've been around for 90 years as a community-based organization and was set up by volunteers got an amazing history actually i guess that puts your cultural change program into some context as well <laughs> it really does yeah what's two years in 90 years you know it's a, yeah a drop in the ocean equally trying to change 90 years of inbuilt culture and behaviours is like it's the metaphor of turning an oil tanker, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It was a bit like that, turning an oil tanker or waking a sleeping giant as one of the mm. people that I'd met when I first got here. Um, it was the chief exec, actually, of the local council. And he said, oh, you've come to wake the sleeping giant that is Gilcare, have you? And I thought, well, that's interesting. But actually what we're trying to do is get back to the original ethos where how the organization was created 90 years ago you know bearing in mind it was ahead of you know the nhs and the welfare state and it was a local group of people that got together and thought actually we, we need some support here and were motivated passionate and skilled enough to create you know this organization that we've got today which is, you know which is phenomenal achievement um so we're trying to get back to our roots actually in many ways of being that community-based charity and we and we always have been it's just i think the focus was slightly different 25 years in the charity sector tends to shape your style a bit and uh, and that's that's what we're trying to create but it's it's really about being a professional organization that's commercially run you know that has the right people in the right place exactly the same way a company would go about trying to um, grow and develop mm. You mentioned um, shaping your style there, which is a lo lovely unplanned segue, sort of on a slightly different tack, but it is a nice segue. I'm just curious, probably the maybe the penultimate question, but I'm curious to ask about how you sort of your early career working as an outdoor activity instructor. How did that shape you as a leader and what influence did, did that have on you? It's fundamentally shaped me and you'll know this better than me, but there's a reason why the military use the outdoors to shape their leaders, because I think there's so much you can learn from it. You know, it's directly tangible. A day out in the mountains, it will give you so many, uh, if you're that way inclined, will give you so many analogies about life and work and, you know, your career and your leadership style. You know, it's it's not true, really. I mean, it's incredible. And I don't do so much of it now, as you might be able to tell. But, you know, it's being out in, in the wilderness. It teaches you lots of things. So humility, firstly, the fact that actually you're insignificant. No matter what you do, you know, you're not dispensable. You're not significant. And there are only so many things that you can control. And uh, most of the things you can't control. 
So actually there's a real uh, kind of almost a spiritual experience of being in the outdoors, which I think is really important philosophically as a leader of an organization to realize that, you know, no, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, no matter how many hours you put in, there are things outside of your control that are going to happen, whether you like it or not, and you've just got to deal with it. And I think the outdoors fundamentally teaches you those things. And then there's, you know, all sorts of specifics about the tenacity, that your resilience, the fact that you have to be adaptive, you know, nothing ever goes to plan. But also when you're, you know, when you're actually leading a group, you know, sometimes you've got to be out the front there leading, Sometimes you can you drop back a bit. You know, if you've got a group of highly skilled climbers, then, you know, you don't need to be hovering over their shoulder and retying their knots for them. But, you know, if you've got a group that are brand new to climbing, you, that's exactly what you need to do, you know, and you, you need to be leading for them. And I think in, in business or in organisations, it's exactly the same thing. You know, if things are going really well and you've got a really high-performing team around you, you know, I'm not saying you sit back, but, you know, it's a very different approach to if you've got new people, people that are underperforming, or there's things going on in the environment that, you know, are causing you a challenge. And that's where, you, you know, you need to be kind of front and centre. And, and the outdoors teaches you that, like nothing else can, including experiences in, in leadership roles. I think everybody should be, have to do a mountain leader course. Yeah, it's been wonderful listening to you share all of that just now Alex because it's really given me the the reminder of as you say just how powerful the outdoors is at really teaching us about situational leadership and like all the situations like understanding the skills and experience of the people in your team and almost the fears of mo- motivations for some people walking along a quite broad ridge line might be terrifying for some people. For others, they might be skipping along it. The situation, depending on the weather, the conditions, changing your plans, it's probably it is probably the best teacher, certainly of situational leadership, if not leadership much much more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And when I think about my job on a day to day basis, probably the biggest skill that I use, the biggest skill, the the most frequently used skill is risk assessment you know that's what I do every morning I come in and I do a risk assessment you know on what you know the most likely (laughs) the likelihood of things going wrong and what's the impact of that and how can I mitigate that every morning I do a risk assessment and nothing teaches you better than than outdoors and adventure about assessing risk which you, you know you do on a dynamic basis and you know that's really all I do here yeah brilliant Alex, I could honestly keep on chatting to you all afternoon. It's been such a such a rich conversation. I've got a new tradition of asking the same closing question to every guest, which is a bit of a twist on a question probably we all ask ourselves from time to time. But it's, what would you say is the best mistake that you've ever made? Best mistake? It's a tricky one because I've made lots of mistakes, but most of them if not all of the ones other than this one thing I can think of have ended in disaster. But having spent some time in fundraising marketing, usually it's a financial disaster. I've been lucky enough to have, you know, in my time as a chief executive, which is probably about, I think, 12 years, 11 years, something like that. There's only ever been one person that has left me that I didn't want to leave. 
now i some people might listen to this and think, oh cheers but uh you know there's genuinely only one person that i lost that i, I really regretted and that was somebody here at Gilcare. and the reason it was a mistake was because i think the reason that um she left was something i could have done something about and actually ended up doing something about but too late and so that that was a big mistake and the reason it was such a big mistake is because this person really embodied those values that I was talking about and those you know just naturally caring compassionate you know amazing person and it was a huge loss to you know what I was trying to achieve and a huge loss to the organization and then I stayed in touch with her and then once I kind of addressed the, the issues I got in touch with her and asked her if she would rejoin the organization as a trustee, and she has. So that's the the mistake that's kind of turned out to be good. And now she's, you know, an amazing trustee. And we're really lucky to have her on board and highly uh, skilled nurse, actually. So, yeah, that's that was my biggest mistake that actually turned out okay. Brilliant. Love that. Alex, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really wonderful chatting to you. There's so many little um, insights and tips that I know listeners will be able to take away and, and use. And as I say, I've thoroughly enjoyed spending time with you today as well myself. So thank you so much for sharing your experience, your expertise, knowledge and wisdom. Really appreciate it. Before you go, just let me say thank you for joining Alex and myself for this episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. If this conversation has been useful for you, if the topics we've discussed have resonated, and if you've learned something useful to help you on your leadership and management journey, then please share it with your friends and colleagues so that they can learn the same tips and have the same experience. And before you go, do check out the Leaders Kitbag episodes of the show. It's the weekly micro edition of the podcast. Each and every episode is just five or six minutes long and it focuses on one very practical leadership tip or tactic. So far in the series, we've covered planning and prioritization, motivation, and very soon, if you're listening live, we've got resilience coming up as the next topic. And again, once you've listened, do share them with your colleagues and share links to them on social media so that together we can improve the leadership capability in our companies, charities and institutions. After all, the world needs great leaders now more than ever. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for being committed to being the best leader you can possibly be. And until next time, lead on. Lead on.